All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its hosts are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome back to the second hour of Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I want to thank our sponsors for making the show economically viable. Uh, For the second hour, our sponsors are Nanostruck Technologies, Paramount Gold and Silver Corp, Columbus Gold, and Golden Arrow Resources. Well, I'm really pleased to have with me once again Todd Wood. He is uh, a graduate of the United States Air Force Academy. He has been an aeronautical engineer and an Air Force pilot and flew over the 20th Special Operations Squadron that started Desert Storm. In 1991 to 1994, he was active in classified missions in support of counterterrorism under the control of the National uh, Command Authority and deployed throughout the world. In 1994, Todd joined an investment bank. During this uh, second career, he became highly knowledgeable in emerging markets, fixed income, and uh, he traveled a great deal internationally with the focus on the Caribbean. He became acutely aware of the consequences of economic decisions and their effect on national and economic security. Um, However, Todd's love for storytelling made him leave the financial business in 2011. Uh, His economic thriller, Currency, was published in December 2011. And um, once he began typing, he never stopped. He has uh, been publishing uh, in the Armed Forces Journal and now lives uh, on a farm in Connecticut. Welcome, Todd. It's really good to have you back. Uh, Jay, thanks for having me. I uh, enjoy your show. It's, it's one where you can actually spend some time and talk, so thanks for having me back. Yeah, we definitely want to give you uh, people that have something to say. We want to give them all the time they, they need to say it. Uh, we, uh, we fail in that regard a lot of times, but uh, it's because our guests do have an awful lot to say. I mentioned currency. But now you've mm-hmm. come out uh, with a second book, and I, I must tell my listeners uh, that uh, that I never ever read novels, but I did read Currency, and I couldn't put it down. I mean, I don't read novels. It's not because I don't like to read. I don't like to read for fun. I don't feel I have the time to read for fun. But with Currency, I felt that there was a connection to the real world that was real enough that it warranted the time to allow myself to enjoy myself a little bit with a book, Currency. And now the second book is Sugar. And we want to talk to Todd about Sugar as well today. But uh, re- let's let's talk a little bit about your first book, Currency, before we get into Sugar, because I think uh, it, it was really very fascinating. I think it it also has so much to do with uh, with the markets today, in a way, uh, Currency by its by its very title. I think it's, it's obvious. Um, your first book, uh, it, you know, there you talked about Alexander Hamilton, and I, I believe, if I remember correctly, you said you're a distant relative of Aaron Burr, so the, so the Hamilton and the Burr uh, conflict was of interest. But, I mean, it covered pirates and hidden gold, uh, hidden gold treasures and the restoration of gold back to the United States. I mean, it was just a fabulous, uh, actually connected to the basic and the beginning of our country's history. Uh, so it, it was just it was just very very interesting and uh, um, so I, I just wanted to ask you then uh, give us a little bit of a of a background on um, sugar what what is the setting of sugar uh, the main character and so forth tell us a little bit about sugar well I you know as you mentioned spent a lot of time traveling throughout the Caribbean and Latin America Asia and. I became aware of the fascinating history of sugar. It really changed the direction of the world when you look at the, you know, the Silk Road from China into the Middle East up to Europe. Um, and the European powers really fought for control of the world over sugar and in the Caribbean because it, besides gold and silver out of the colonies, I mean, sugar was one of the main uh, products. And the West Indies 
due to the sugar production, actually outproduced by GDP the American colonies at one point. Mm. So altogether, so you know, from slavery to the importation of Indians into the you know from India into, into the Caribbean, from I mean, it's just a lot of history there, and it, it made for a fascinating story. But uh, you know, and I had always wanted to write about it, but you know, I like to write about things that have, as you mentioned, current you know implications and, and mm-hmm. dealing with issues today, and and the energy issue, and you know, the question of who really benefits from stopping energy exploitation in the United States. Mm-hmm. It became you know on my mind a lot, and. So sugar starts with kind of the, and it ties in the Crusades and a lot of things that are going on today and, and, and how they relate to the past. But, you know, hydrocarbons are carbohydrates. I mean, you know, they're, they're similar. And what are they are? At the, at the end of the day, they're different forms of energy. And so the book really deals with energy production and government corruption and how that is playing out today So and, and the history behind it. Mm-hmm. Well, um, just to... Read a little bit of a of a quote uh, in the promo for your book, Sugar. Uh, it says, while fighting for his life in a personal crisis, Connor realizes to his shock, he must also fight his own government. Corrupt officials are tied to an ancient cause that is still playing itself out in a very real way in our lives today. And what is sugar? Sugar is uh, sugar at its root is energy. Who controls energy controls the world. The black helicopters are coming. End of quote. <laughs> so, you know, obviously that is a, that that's a quote that's uh, that's made to to entice people to open the cover and start reading the book. Uh, but uh, tell us who who is uh, what is the setting of this book? Then, I mean, it's it's all over the world, I guess, right? Well, it's three parts, and the initial part is, uh, you know, and I don't want to give away the whole plot because that's part sure. of the thrill of reading the book. But the first part deals with the Muslim, early Muslim caliphates, you know, conquering India and then spreading into Jerusalem and the crusades that happened. And, and really the, his, the sugar is just a, a vehicle to explain that history and to connect it all together. So, but okay. the, real, the real drive is, or the real theme is what happened during the crusades and, and how that ended up moving into our lives today. But the second part deals with the Caribbean and the sugar planters and they're connected to that region due to the influx of Indians and other immigrants into the UK and then down into the Caribbean. And then the third part is jumps to the future again and follows currency with the same main characters and extends that uh, plot into the future and deals with the government corruption. And again, who is controlling energy today and who benefits from stopping the United States from developing the almost $2 trillion barrels of oil we're sitting on under our feet. We could be energy independent. We could revive our economy. But what is the agenda to, and who, you know, follow the money. Who is benefiting from stopping that from happening? Mm-hmm. So uh, throughout the book, I guess sugar is energy, and energy is such an important part of the, uh, of the global economy. But we're really uh, talking about uh, the driver is economics, is it? Or is it religion? Well, the, the driver is, is, is really... Well, it's all tied together, but sure. again, if you, there was a movie that came out a few uh, years ago called The Promised Land with Matt Damon, and it was all about uh, you know the dangers of fracking and how you're going to turn on your water and your kitchen's going to explode and catch on fire yep. from the you know and all, and you know what got me interested in this is most people don't know who financed that movie. Who did who finance 15, it? Who, 15, who wrote a fifteen million dollar check? It was United Arab Emirates Production Company. Ah, interesting. So, why are they doing that? Why do they want us to not develop our own energy reserves? I mean, I think it's pretty obvious because the, 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 the money flow to the Middle East will stop if we become energy independent. So that got me really thinking, and, and uh, I explore that and take it steps further as to what the real agenda is out there dealing with energy right now in our country. Okay, so Todd, I, I was uh, browsing the bookstore at Barnes & Noble out on Long Island this last weekend, and I can't remember the name of a book, but it was written by a Wall Street Journal reporter, and it was, uh, I think, basically the same theme, that uh, it was sort of harping on the environmental issues that, uh, that, that surround the fracking industry. Um, 
do you, are you have you read more books? Have you seen more books or more? Uh, well, I've done a lot more of literature. Research. You know, yeah. I looked into that issue very in, in depth, and, and people don't know fracking has been around since 1948. It's no, it's not a new technology. We've been uh-huh. doing it successfully and safely for decades. And the state. So, what's new decades. about it? Why has it become so big recently? Well, because we have discovered more and more, uh, I guess, area uh, pockets of oil that can be exploited that way, and the technology yeah. has gotten so much better. Has gotten better, can, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that we can do it safely and effectively, and really, literally, in a decade, we have reversed the problems we've had with energy. It's quite astounding. We're an energy exporter now, and um, talk about a way to grow the economy and get the government out of the way and let the economy really rebound. I mean, let this energy develop, or let this industry yeah. develop. Well, certainly there are parts of our country that are doing quite well now as a result of it. And even, you know, my uh, my home area of, uh, of Canton, Ohio, which has really been, you know, that whole Rust Belt has had a tough time of it. Mm-hmm. I remember a, a year ago or so uh, hearing about how a steel mill was opening up just to build the casings for the uh, for this for this uh, for this industry that was required. You know, so and clearly there's areas where where it's going on where the economies are really doing quite well. Is uh, do you, do you think that we're in danger? Of, of politics stopping this, Todd? I think that's it's already happened. I mean, I don't think it's going to stop, but it has definitely been an impediment. I mean, you know, Obama talks about how we've had more drilling than ever this you know, last period of years, but Romney was right in the debates. It's because the private industry, I mean, his administration shut down, uh, you know, drilling on federal lands. And, and it, it really, literally, if we got out of the way and let, in my opinion, let this industry blossom. Think of all the jobs that could be created, the, the ancillary, you know, mom-and-pop stores in the towns. I mean, there's just a lot of economic growth that could happen, in my opinion. Yeah. We've, I, I know we've had a, a fellow on this show named Chris Martinson who takes somewhat of a different view of it. His, his idea is that uh, we, we should be going slow. Well, he thinks that we should be slowing down in terms of our energy demands, that we should be more, that we should conserve more. And I think, I, 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 you know, I think he's a free market guy, so I'm not sure. He, he sort mm-hmm. of believes that there are limitations and that there are some environmental issues. Certainly the Matt Damon movie, um, blew it all out of proportion, any kind of environmental issues. And, um, I mean, I saw that movie and it's, 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 it was ridiculous, I think, but, um, so, uh, okay. So, um, well, let, what, me, let me make one more point. If, if yeah, you want sure. to really help, help the poor, do you know the average poor family in poverty spends over half their income on energy from Is that fuel, right? yeah. fuel in their homes, from electricity, you know, cars, if we could half that bill for them, talk about a way of helping people. In my, you know, reducing energy costs is, is one way to do that. But I'll let you take it where you want it for now. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, uh, certainly um, energy is such a big, such an important thing. Let me ask you this then with regard to what's going on in the Middle East now. You know, we've had some geopolitical issues, uh, well, we always have in the Middle East. But, but recently, of course, uh, it seems as though Saudi Arabia has warmed a bit to um, – uh, uh, was it to Russia, or I think the, they were looking to turn to Russia? And there's this whole issue of Syria and Iran. Mm-hmm. What's going on there? Can you put that into some kind of perspective? What, what do you think? I mean, yeah, if we became actually, energy, if we if we became en- energy independent here, and we didn't need those countries, would we still be involved uh, with our military in those parts of the world? Well, I'm actually writing a. A piece right now for a major website, uh, news website on that exact issue because the you know the Saudis have been our allies for a long time, but they, they're 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 doing it out of self-preservation in their own interests, which every country does. I mean, they're a supporter of, of Sunnis around the world. They're extremely concerned with two issues. One is that the United States is hell bent on striking a deal with Iran on their nuclear weapons, and that scares the Saudis to death. So that has pushed them. I think the latest talk was Pakistan, into where they supposedly have already paid for weapons to be developed, and within a month they could have them on Saudi soil. You know whether that's true wow. or not. There's a lot of rumors to that. So that is a nuclear, you know, problem. That's proliferation in a very, very dangerous region, which I don't think we want. The other issue is energy. They're ex- very scared that we are not going to need them is for oil. Their influence with us will be less. And yes, I think Russia is very willing to step into the void. Uh, they have done so. They just signed a huge arms deal with Egypt because we've backed away from Egypt, the Egyptian government. 
So, yes, I think things are rapidly changing in the Middle East, but it's a scary place that we need to show leadership in and take care of our friends, I think. Mm-hmm. So if we continue to develop energy on our own, though, we'll have less of a need for, for uh, Middle East, and won't that sort of unsettle things? Yeah, I think, I think that's what's happening right now. I mean, that's what the Saudis are afraid of. So they're looking for other people that they can rely on. They don't, and there's this feeling among, well, it's not just the Saudis. It's the, uh, you know, the Israelis, the Poles, the, the UK, that they just can't trust us anymore. And what is the agenda? You know, that's a whole other issue. What is the foreign policy agenda of the United States right now? Is it to strengthen our economic and military power or is it something else? And I'm not sure. Hmm. And do you think it's uh, decidedly different with this administration as opposed to the past one? I do. I, I think that they have a more redistributionist uh, and actually a goal of reducing American power. I mean, I don't think you can say that they've been out to build up the ability of, of the United States to project power in the world. I, I just don't think that's the case. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, well, back to your book, um, this, this guy, Connor, can you give us a little bit of an idea of what, a little bit more of an idea about what the book's about, or would you rather not and let people buy it? Uh, no, I, I can go into it. I mean, I, again, the <laughs> plot is, is the, is the uh, you know, the twists and turns are, are what makes the book really a page-turner. It can't sure. be around. Kind of, so, yes. But if you remember out of Currency, Connor was, uh, had been through a major crisis and was a little bit, uh, I guess, down and out, and he ends up getting hooked up with... Uh, the the female heroine in this in sugar which she had was going to meet in currency and they have a a problem that comes upon them that they have to deal with and I'm trying I'm struggling on how to explain the plot without giving away the plot but <laughs> okay <laughs> it, it, it basically that they they have to deal with a government that's coming after them for a certain reason and which is the United States government and then what happens out of that and who is behind it. And so that's really the plot. All right. So uh, tell us, I mean, I was just watching uh, CNBC here before the show started, and they had some energy guys on there, and they were talking about predicting lower prices uh, for oil and gas uh, going forward. Uh, What are your thoughts? I think that that's quite possible. Uh, One, you're not going to have a lot of the transportation um, cost, you know, shipping it from the Middle East, uh, it, it's going to be. We lost Todd. Okay, okay. Uh, let's let's take a commercial break, and then we'll pick up with Todd uh, when he comes back. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Paramount Gold and Silver is a U.S.-based exploration company with multi-million ounce gold and silver deposits. Paramount's primary asset, the Sleeper Gold Project in northern Nevada, is located in one of the world's most prolific mining districts. Paramount's gold equivalent resources stand at over 7 million ounces. Paramount trades on the NYSE under the symbol PZG. For more information, go to www.paramountgold.com. Paramount Gold is located for success in gold and silver exploration. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back uh, to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Uh, we had a little technical difficulty. We got a commercial break out of the way, so we can uh, talk now a little longer, Todd. I, I think when we uh, when we lost contact here, you were we were talking or you were opining on the price of, of oil and gas maybe going forward. 
Yeah, Jay, I, I do think it will decline. I, you know, the whole other issue that needs to be resolved is the issue of how the energy resources are going to be transported. Should we develop the pipelines out of Canada from the tar sands? I mean, that, those hydrocarbons are going to be used one way or the other. I, I happen to think that pipelines are much safer than hauling them on trains. Um, but that's, you know, a whole other environmental debate that needs to go mm-hmm. on. But the refineries are in the United States. The energy will get there from the United States and not from overseas. It's, it's much safer than putting them in tankers and, you know, mm-hmm. driving them into ports where there's a lot of environmental, you know, possibilities that could happen to fragile ecosystems. So, yeah, I think there's a lot of positive things about developing our own energy. I mean, we have 300 years' worth of energy here, and natural gas is much cheaper, and there's much more of that than oil sitting under us. And supposedly cleaner, too. Yeah, uh, that's, cleaner yeah, form of energy exactly. as well. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and I know that the buses here in New York City, I believe, uh, have their um, are, are, are powered by uh, natural gas. and uh, No reason why natural gas, gas couldn't be used for transportation, I think. Um, well, and with regard to the safety of transportation, Warren Buffett prefers the uh, the trains, I understand. Yeah, of course, because he owns the trains. Yes, he owns the trains, yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, to what extent is uh, those decisions made not by free markets, but sometimes by uh, by political influence? I don't know that that's the case with Mr. Buffett, but certainly it's an interesting observation that he favors the trains and happens to own them. So. Well, it's highly um, circumstantial, that's for sure. You know, uh, Todd, you mentioned that we have 300 years here in the United States North America, I suppose you're including Canada in that as well. But the point is, yeah. it would seem to me geologically that should be true of other continents as well. There's no reason why it would just be confined to the U.S., uh, to the I mean, North America. You're American right. Continent. I mean, China has uh, – the issue is technology. I mean, we are decades ahead of the rest of the world here. And if we want a uh, an economic uh, you know, export model, I mean, this is where we could really – you know, make some money uh, for the country and, and build our net worth and pay off our debts. And, you know, lots of economic activity creates lots of taxes, which, you know, versus raising taxes. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, I, I think that if we, you know, I, I know the Russians and the Chinese are very interested in our technology. And, you know, why don't we, you know, exploit it and, and, and stay ahead of the others, but, you know, sell what works and, and, and get ourselves out of this economic, you know, decline we're in. Mm-hmm. Well, that might make too much sense for the politicians, and uh, I mean, it's it certainly it certainly makes sense to me uh, that we ought to be doing that, and 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 rather than uh, fighting wars, perhaps uh, trying to live uh, with these countries, working with them, and so forth. I don't know if that's possible. Maybe it's utopian. You're a man that's been in the. Uh, uh, you, know, you, you know, in in conflict, um, but it seems to me the conflict uh, a lot of times is not would not necessarily would not be that necessary if there were, uh, you know, if people would find a way to uh, to trade together as Ron Paul would have us do trade together and not uh, would would open would open up trade but not use the United States military to beat the hell out of countries and change their governments necessarily. Well, I would agree with that. You know, I, I spent a lot of time in Saudi Arabia. Uh, first time during the first Gulf conflict, and then I, I actually traded with them a good bit with Al Raji Bank and some of the others there. You know, they have a system of Islamic, um, you know, bonds where they, mm-hmm. it's against their religion to earn interest. So they set up sure. these very complicated commodity transactions, uh, which does the same thing, but technically they're not earning interest. So there's a lot of money to be made there uh, in a lot of ways, and. You know, but I do believe we should be, uh, you know, we've had been friends with Saudi Arabia since 1930. Why do we want to throw that away? I think we should, uh, you know, maintain some strong relationships in the region and because there's really not any others. We're out of Iraq. We're soon, you know, Afghanistan's not stable. Um, so we, we need to have some, uh, some ability to try and shape it and not pull out altogether because when we do that, I think things get... Unfortunately, for the United States, things get really bad when we don't show leadership. What happened, uh, I mean, what's, maybe you could comment on this because I don't understand why it is uh, that there are so many people at 9-11 that, that came out of Saudi Arabia that were involved in that attack on America. What, what's going on there? Well, because they have a, uh, they support the, you know, the very fundamentalist sect of Islam. And it, mm-hmm. it is, they, they're, they, are in a position where, you know, most of their oil is populated by the Shia, which is, which is another reason they're concerned about Iran, because their fields are basically a lot of Shia population there. So, 
but they are they, they protect Medina and Mecca and they're the protectors of the holy Islamic sites and they have a very strong Wahhabist uh, influence in the country and they support you know that religious uh, strain while at the same time trying to be friends with us it's it's not an easy uh, you know tightrope to walk that's for sure and I don't think you can trust them totally but you can sure have a place that if you need to you know, have a friend to use an airbase or, or whatever. I mean, that's important. We're, so the conflicts go back a long ways. Um, oh, sure. And, you know, the, the conflicts between Islam and the West, Islam and, and I suppose the Judeo-Christian religion. Mm-hmm. We're, uh, what, I mean, is there, there's really, it's, it's hard to see how it can be resolved. I mean, because it's, the economic interests go along with the, uh, with the religious interests, don't they? Well, you know, and as I get older, I think you're right. It is, how do you resolve these things? Uh, you know, that whole religion, and I'm not prejudiced whatsoever, but I mean, they, they have a very, very violent strain, strain that needs to mm-hmm. be dealt with. And uh, that's mm-hmm. just a fact of life. So, uh, you know, I've just become over time, I guess, you know, let's take care of number one and my family and my country and the people I'm dealing with. And, mm-hmm. you know, let's trade with a lot of people and make money and but just, protect our way of life because I think it's yeah. endangered at some point. Yeah. I mean, you raise the question, can we live peacefully together? Uh, do we have anything in common at all? I mean, is there, is there something to build on here? I guess there is. I guess there's there's some commonality within the the legal framework, but a lot of it is, is contrary to ours. I mean, this whole notion of oh, it's Sharia law or whatever. Yeah, yeah. You, know, mm-hmm. you steal and you get your hands cut off. You, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's, well, it's, just, so, it's just so alien to us. You don't see uh, you don't see Baptists running around cutting people's heads off. That's for sure. So there's a definite <laughs> different mentality. Uh, and uh, yes, I, I, I'm at a lot because it's you're seeing it spread throughout Europe. Uh, you know, there was an article that a lot of the Jewish population in Europe feels very uncomfortable because of the, the radical Islamist uh, support by a lot of the governments. So it's it's, mm-hmm. it's scary. It seems to me, Todd, that what we've got is a vacuum in Western culture because uh, people with the Judeo-Christian background are not reproducing, and Muslims are. So you have a massive population growth, and those people have to go someplace. They're going somewhere, as you mentioned. They're in in Europe. They're crowding into Europe more and more. We're Mm -hmm. seeing them here Mm -hmm. in the States more and more. Uh, Maybe part of the problem is that we've lost our traditional values to the extent that... um, that we no longer can can defend our culture. Well, I think that is happening globally. You know, I, I think I've mentioned before I do a lot of travel into Russia, and I'm I'm mm-hmm. going there next week. And you see them, and you know, you talk to them, and they've had a history of up and down, you know, crazy markets, defaults, uh, hardship, Stalin. You know, so they are very, very scared of having children. They, you know, you, at the most you see Russians with one, at the, you know, maybe two children if they are mm-hmm. wealthy. Um, but they have the same problem, and their race is declining. Um, the same thing, you know, and then you look at China where they've got just crazy structural problems due to their one-child policy. I mean, there's mm-hmm. gonna be real consequences to that. It's going to be real interesting to watch how this all plays through, you know, over the next decade. You had in China with um, uh, with the one child policy, many girls not allowed to be born or have life, and so you have all these men that are without mm-hmm. women. It seems to me that's a very dangerous situation. Yeah, they call them little emperors. You know, I mean, it's because they're the only child and they've been coddled their whole life. And they, Where do you, I mean, the, yeah, those you know, guys. You, go ahead. You know, I was just going to say those guys have to go somewhere to look for girls. Well, that's true. You know, in Japan, so what, they're building robots, but <laughs> but uh, you're right. They're they're going to need women, and where you know where do they go? Korea? I don't know. Mongolia? Um, it, that's but it, that causes just really big structural, economic, and demographic problems. It is how that plays itself out, and how it affects the rest of the world is well to be seen, I guess. Well, uh, Todd, before we uh, before we let you go, I want to get your opinion on some of the markets that we talked about the last time you mm-hmm. were here. I think mm-hmm. you were uh, very, very bearish on the bond market. Has that changed? Not at all. I, you know, I think you saw a you know the, the ten year. I forget when we were last together, maybe six, uh, three or four months ago. Uh, the ten year popped through three percent here recently when we had 
uh, talk of the taper. I mean, that's going to happen at some point. Um, you know, you know what scares me, Jay, is that Obamacare mm. is so unsuccessful as far as signing new people up, and maybe this will change. But all you're getting really is Medicaid patients. So you're getting an expansion of free health care without the young healthy signing up. And yeah. so, therefore, you're going to have trillions added to the deficit. So this is only going to blow this problem out even more. And, you know, there's a saying that interest rates are low until they're not. So you don't know when that's going to happen. When the market at some day, one day wakes up due to some kind of event or whisper from the Fed or Chinese leader statement, and the market says, you know, they're not going to pay their money back, and rates explode, and then the Fed can't control it anymore. That's what I'm really worried about. But I'm, I'm trying to understand in my own mind why the Fed can't control it, because they can print endless amounts of money. Let's say there's no takers for U.S. Treasuries anymore. Can't they keep buying it? Can't yeah, the Fed I guess keep they buying could. the Treasuries? I, I guess they can just explode their balance sheet out forever, but... Uh, uh, you know, they, they, I, get, they, I don't think they can buy everything. Uh, you know, I mean, they, they're buying over half of it right now, but that's a good question. I mean, I guess, I guess, uh, you know, at that point, Katie barred the door because then they'd have to keep on buying it forever. <laughs> I mean, would, I mean I'm trying to, it seems to me it's all a con game. It's all about confidence because their currency has no value behind it. It's a con game. The United mm-hmm. States military has to go around the world and enforce the U.S. dollar policy, kind of, I believe, in some ways. I don't know if you share that view or not. John Perkins, who we had on this show, believed it was one of the reasons we went into uh, Iraq. But the whole notion that uh, the United States, because of its privilege after World War II, could sort of enforce the, I mean, Nixon decided he didn't want to have the gold standard anymore, so he just said, we're not going to give you guys gold anymore for your dollars. To hell with you. And then we uh, are expending in the United States, and, uh, and the United States military expanded, and we, you know, there was no limit to what we could do. I'm just trying to understand in my own mind. I'm trying to watch because, um, you know, I would like to make money on the short side of that market sure. when the day comes. I've been trying, and, I, and, I've, and I'm always wrong. And somehow, you know, the Fed comes in, and the dollar remains remains relevant you know i mean it's losing some of its uh some of its stature there's no doubt about that and i'm wondering you know we're hearing china and russia i'm wondering if it's not going to come to some sort of a geopolitical confrontation that sacks the confidence in uh well, in, that, in the u.s dollars we don't know how it's going to happen and you know we've had a huge move in the 10-year i mean we had a 50 percent move in the 10-year but uh, it's still at, at you know notional very low rates. I mean, the average over history is about six and a half percent. It's at less than three now, but it did pop above three percent from two. So that was a yeah. huge move. Um, but yes, I think the military and geopolitical problem is is one that we're going to have to face. I mean, that that's that could be the way this plays out. You know, I'm writing my third book, which is called Delta, which means change, and oh. it's about. The parallels, and it's another thriller, but it's about the parallels between the Roman Empire and the United States. And the empire lasted a thousand years. And they had the same issues that kept going and going and going, and they were corrupt and corrupt and corrupt, and they kept devaluing their currency. And one day the lights just went out, you know? And and that's what I fear is going to happen to us if we don't get some adult supervision. Uh, Todd, my engineer is telling me we have to go to a break now. If, I'd like to have you stick around and, and at least listen to a clip that I'm going to play on the Kennedy assassination. If there's time, get your quick comment on it, possibly. Sure. Would well, you be willing to stick with me? Okay, well, so let's. Uh, we're going to go to a break now, and when we come back, uh, I will. Uh, we're going to play an interview um, with um, uh, Professor uh, Russell Baker. Uh, that he did with Russian television and having to do with uh, the Kennedy assassination. And given Todd's background, I'd like him to listen in and, and see if he has any comments. So uh, don't go away. We'll be right back. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Golden Arrow Resources on the TSX Exchange has recently made a new silver discovery and is presently drilling a 6,500-meter program on that discovery. A maiden resource calculation is expected to be released in April of this year. The project is located in Jujuy Province in northern Argentina, just 30 kilometers from the Perquitas Mine operated by Silver Standard. Golden Arrow has an experienced team with decades of experience in Argentina. Golden Arrow offers shareholders exceptional leverage with an exciting new silver discovery. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. 
listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I've asked Todd Wood to stick with me here uh, because we're going to play a clip, uh, an interview uh, that Russell Baker did um, regarding the Kennedy assassination. And Todd, uh, given Todd's uh, experience in, uh, in the military and elsewhere in the financial markets and stuff, I just thought it'd be interesting if he listened in and he might have some uh, some comments as well. Um, you know, certainly we've had some very interesting people on recently, uh, and we uh, we recall the remarks that Jimmy Carter recently made that was picked up by Der Spiegel, in which he said that we in the United States do not currently have a functioning democracy. Um, and uh, last week we had with us uh, Jacob Hornberger. Uh, he talked about the Kennedy assassination and how, uh, in fact. Um, uh, the Secret Service uh, did, uh, precluded or did not allow the Texas uh, government to carry out its, uh, its uh, investigation after the assassination to do its autopsy. Um, you know, certainly may not agree. I can remember as a young man when President Kennedy was, was my president, uh, and I wasn't brought up to like President Kennedy. Uh, I was brought up to think he was, uh, too far to the left. He was, uh, you know, some people would call him a communist. He was, uh, certainly not the kind of person that I thought was ideal in many ways, given the values that I was brought up with. But as I look back on things now, I'm wondering, maybe we might have a communist in the White House right now. For all I know, his, his policies certainly are much closer to Marxism and they are a free market capitalism. And Ken- Kennedy, looking back on it, looked like he was a pretty conservative guy, given what we're dealing with these days. But, um, you know, as we near the 50th anniversary of the tragic death of John Kennedy, uh, you know, many of us have given a lot of thought to his passing. Uh, there are a lot of movies and things coming out now. We've uh, certainly we've had uh, uh, Vincent Bugliosi on this show, who who has uh, pretty much uh, buys the Warren Commission. Uh, but there are others that, that do not, and... Um, one of those people who are really skeptical about what happened uh, in the official accounts of the uh, the Kennedy assassination is Russ Baker. So I'd like uh, I'd like Matt to can you play that clip that we have with Russ Baker? He was interviewed by RTV. Play it now for us, would you please? This year marks half a century since the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. And to this day, his death remains one of the most contentious accounts in an official government narrative. 2003 Gallup poll found that 75% of Americans think that Lee Harvey Oswald did not act alone. In fact, JFK's nephew, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., has just come out and said that he's convinced that we're not being told the truth, asserting that the Warren Commission was a shoddy piece of craftsmanship. After decades of speculation, it's a topic that director Oliver Stone boldly took on in his debut expose entitled JFK, which some call the most comprehensive account of the events surrounding his death. Take a look. If I answer that question you keep asking, if I give you the name of the big enchilada you know, then it's Bon Voyage Dino. I mean like poiming it. I mean like a bullet in my head, you dig? Does that help you see my problem a little better? Out of the corner of my eye, I saw a flash of light in bushes. And then shots rang out. Don't cloak and dagger stuff, you know. They call it Operation Mongoose. It's going to be okay, Dave. You just talk to us on the record and we'll protect you. I guarantee it. You're so naive. Well, I got the chance to speak to Oliver Stone himself about the film, where he explained why it's so hard to discern what really happened that day. Listen for yourself. These are my conclusions based on a huge amount of research, but I, we cannot ever prove anything in that movie practically mm. because there's been so much blurring of the facts, so much disappearance of autopsy among them, mm. the bullets, the, the concept of fingerprints, all the chain of evidence was lost. Uh, Oswald's interrogation was lost. Unfortunately, more than 50,000 pages of JFK-related classified documents are being withheld despite a FOIA request for the release of this information for the 50th anniversary of his death this year. 
but people are still demanding the truth. In fact, the National Archives and Records Administration just asked for suggestions on a public forum about what it could do to create greater transparency. And lo and behold, the most popular response was to get the Kennedy records out. So, here to talk about what these records could reveal and whether their holdup is more strategic than we all think, I'm joined now by Russ Baker, editor of whowhatwhy.org and author of Family of Secrets. Thank you so much for coming on, Russ. My pleasure. So you've been investigating this issue for a very long time. Uh, let's talk first about the documents. These 50,000 pages that are not being released, it's only 1% according to the establishment. So if we already have the other 99%, what could this 1% really reveal to us? Well, it could reveal a great deal. In fact, the question would be, since the government's official position has always been that it was just Lee Harvey Oswald and there was nothing more to the story, why would anything be withheld that relates to the Kennedy assassination? And, you know, they, they use numbers. We don't know that we can trust them, but they say 5 million documents. Most of them have been released. They've only held back 1%. Well, that's 50,000. You do wonder what are in those 50,000 documents. Right. I mean, that's a good question. If they have nothing to hide, why are they refusing to release information? Why are they hiding a really important aspect of this investigation? Let's go over some of the biggest anomalies for people who haven't really researched it, who have maybe haven't seen JFK or know really that much. That contradict the official story. Uh, first, why is the bullet called this magic bullet? I mean, why why do people refer it to that way? Well, basically, I mean, that's a very complex technical issue. But in essence, what happened was the Warren Commission was under pressure to agree with a story that had already been leaked by J. Edgar Hoover that they had already concluded within basically hours that uh, Oswald had done it alone, that there was nothing else for them to do, and so they had to conform to that. So they had to go through great gymnastics in order to make it possible for this one man to have fired uh, those crucial shots that caused a number of different injuries, bullet holes, and so forth. So one bullet caused a bunch of different exit wounds and, and doesn't really make sense. The grassy knoll, why is it speculated that the fourth shot actually took place and not from the book depository? Well, there are really many different accounts suggesting uh, some sort of triangulation, multiple shooters. Obviously, if uh, the people who are professionally trained in conducting coups understand you only have one chance to do it and you need to do it right. And what you would do is you'd have people in the back and you'd have people in the fore. Uh, and that is what uh, most of the indications are, that there were several shooters. And wasn't there a government agency that actually conducted an independent investigation and f listened to the tapes from that day and actually concluded that there was a fourth shot. Right, Abby. This is very, very interesting. The uh, House in the 1970s, a decade after the Kennedy assassination, uh, conducted extensive inquiries. The House Select Committee on Assassinations, in its final report, actually concluded a probable conspiracy in Kennedy's death. Unbelievable. Um, the man with the umbrella, this is something that I didn't even know about until today. Really fascinating that a, a person would be standing out in, in the sunlight dressed in all black, holding an open umbrella. What is the significance of this? Uh, we just did a story on that recently on Hawaii. What we were interested in was uh, that there was a man who was furiously pumping an umbrella at the exact moment that the shots rang out on a sunny day uh, right next to Kennedy's car. Uh, we noticed how the mainstream media, particularly the New York Times, had sort of poo-pooed that and said that it was just a man with some crazy theory and he was trying to signal Kennedy. That seemed improbable. And so uh, what we think is it was any of a number of things. Uh, what that was, whether he was a distraction or he was signaling to shooters, the likelihood, and I think any serious crime investigator would want to look a lot harder at him. Yeah, very interesting uh, aspect of the story. Another is it's alleged that Oswald was connected to the CIA, uh, even a double agent, uh, thus making him almost the perfect patsy. Um, is there any evidence to back this up? There actually is a lot of evidence. Uh, recently someone asked me, well, what are a few things that can sort of suggest that there was in fact a conspiracy? And my point would be, what are a few things that don't suggest that? It's kind of like you're standing in the forest and there are so you don't even realize you're surrounded by trees. Uh, over the last 50 years, there have been hundreds of books. My book Family of Secrets is one of many that all bring up different documented information strongly, strongly suggesting that we're looking at something much more serious here. And I always ask in these situations, qui bono, who benefits, um, who would benefit the most from Kennedy's death? Well, one, one of the things that I think the mainstream media has been doing all of these years is trying to convince us that John F. Kennedy was in some ways not that significant a figure. There was no reason to take him out. The more I study him, the more I realize he was probably the most radical president 
But perhaps, at least in that century, and perhaps in American history, he and his brother Robert were pursuing a broad range of initiatives that were angering particularly corporations and wealthy individuals, everything from oil companies to foreign resource extraction companies uh, to organized crime to people in major centers in the government and the military and the CIA. They basically were taking on everybody. And I think when people look at that and they, and they look at him kind of targeting organized crime, the mafia, and they say, well, the mafia took him out. But could the mafia have gone to the extent of the cover-up of his death without government involvement? Absolutely not. It, I do think that this was a very layered operation. I'm continuing to investigate it, and I think what we're looking at is something that was years in the planning. Uh, there were so many different people brought in, particularly for the purpose that people could point their fingers, but again, I think the mob was being utilized by much more calculating people who had the capability, as you point out, to also orchestrate a cover-up uh, involving the uh, autopsy uh, and, of course, the Warren Commission and everything that came after. Right, which was appointed by Johnson, his... Uh you know, the vice president at the time who then became president, based on all the information available, I know that there's been multiple independent investigations that have come. You've been doing your own. What is the conclusion? I think the conclusion is that the same people in this country who think it's okay to, to assassinate or otherwise remove elected leaders uh, don't feel that way only when it comes to other countries. It's just that if you're going to do it in this country, you have to be much more careful. You have to be absolutely sure that you control the whole environment. Controlling the media is the key to all of it, because if you control the media, you control the minds. Uh, I think Jim Morrison said that. And, and if you do that, basically, you really don't have any kind of problem. Somebody once said, to me that the important, most important agency in the government uh, was the Department of Justice, because as long as your friends are in there and they're not going to come after you, you're okay. Everything you do is, is legal. Indeed. Uh, the media manipulation is a huge aspect of this. Of course, uh, the overwhelming majority of Americans don't believe the official story, yet anyone who questions it is, is labeled fringe, a conspiracy theorist, even the disinformation campaign going on about the people who want these documents to be released. But first, if this is the case, that there was this criminal cabal behind the assassination, did they get phased out, or do they still exist in the form of a military-industrial complex? I mean, where did they go? I think all you have to do is look at the fact that we have so few choices in this country, that ever since John F. Kennedy, the range of options uh, have, that have been presented to us are all very, very narrow. You see that in the presidential debates. There really is no general broad disagreement about, for example, pursuing foreign wars, about what the United States interests actually are. And I think that the message has been made clear that uh, real dissent will not be tolerated. And how is it that so many people can disagree with this official narrative, yet kind of be dismissed still to this day as just fringe? I think this gets back to controlling the dominant narrative in this country. It gets back to the ownership of the media, the ownership of textbook companies, uh, the major donors to large universities and so forth. Uh, as long as you control the purse strings, you control virtually everything. And, you know, last but not least, what do we do about these documents? I mean, Obama's trying to hold them indefinitely. It's already coming up on the 50 years. They can't possibly impede national security. I mean, we're talking about an event that occurred very long time ago. What is the official position that they're holding of why they don't want to release them, and what do we do to really get them released? They don't really provide an answer. Originally, someone from the National Archives said that everything should have been released uh, by November 2013, the 50th anniversary. He retired, and then the uh, National Archives here in Washington began saying that, no, this is not going to be released until 2017, but there's actually a clause allowing places like the CIA to uh, indefinitely delay all of this. So I, I think it really would come down to the people who supported Barack Obama and believe that he's a good man and that he stands for openness to pressure him uh, for the release. But I think the reality also is that he himself, I think, has some trepidation, some awareness that he can't quite open up that Pandora's box. It is certainly Pandora's box. You explore it in a couple chapters in your book, Family of Secrets, Russ Baker, who, what, why, dot org. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right. Well, there you have, a, I thought, a very interesting uh, interview with uh, Russ Baker, who has been an, uh, a guest on this show. And so uh, we have Todd Wood, who is an equally interesting fellow who is with us still. Uh, uh, Todd, any thoughts on what you just heard? Well, I, I've always been puzzled by that question. I mean, you know, it's, it's pretty obvious that there's something there that they don't want people to see, right? Or they'd be released. So mm -hmm. that's always puzzled me. And, you know, the whole transparency issue is 
not being very well uh, adhered to these days. So, uh, yeah, I think there's obviously something there. What, you know, what it is, I have no idea. I'm not an expert, but um, I would love to see what's there. Yeah, I think we would all love to see what's there, though somebody obviously doesn't want us to see that. I thought it was very interesting in Russ Baker's book when he uh, noted that Nixon tried to get the CIA files on Kennedy and was never able to uh, to obtain them. It seems to me that if the President of the United States is not able to get that kind of information, then one wonders if the President of the United States is really the President of the United States or if there's not something bigger going on behind the scenes. And um I, I just uh, I found that to be very remarkable. Well, certainly as we're coming up on on 50 years, it's something that people are are wondering about, and there are people out there that are trying to say, "Don't worry, everything is fine," and yet uh, it's a, a question that just doesn't want to go away. Uh, so, and in any event, uh, I want to thank you, Todd, for being with us again. I've only got a couple of minutes left, and again, your new book, uh, Currencies, was very well. Uh, was just an exciting book, a very, very fascinating book, and now your sugar book is is equally as good. I although I haven't taken the time to read through it as thoroughly as I did currency, and then you have a third book. Well, you're becoming a very prolific writer, aren't you? Well, it's it's just coming out of me. You know, I can't stop it. <laughs> and you uh, you're using your experience uh, uh, in the military, in the financial world, and so forth. Uh, you have a very interesting background, and obviously, thank you very much for sharing. Uh, your insights and your your talents, uh, your writing talents with us. It's uh, greatly appreciated. Hope that we can have you on again sometime in the not-too-distant future. Of course, Jay, anytime. I really appreciate you letting me back on. Thanks a lot. Thank you very much. Well, folks, uh, next week uh, we're going to be talking to um, well, we're going to be talking to a couple of guys that write newsletters that compete with yours truly. And we're talking about Eric Coffin, Brent Cook, and John Kaiser. Uh, I, I think there are some great opportunities in the mining sector now, especially since they've the shares have been smacked down so hard. Gold has been, I think, artificially lowered to levels that. Uh, uh, that I think make gold itself a great buy right now. But the mining shares, when the real price of gold rises, we should see a very dramatic increase in the profits of the mining companies, much as we saw a couple of years following the Lehman Brothers' decline. Whether or not we go into a deflationary implosion, Todd Wood was talking about the possibility of uh, of higher interest rates, which I think could really cripple the economy very dramatically given the enormous amount of leverage that we have. Um, Whatever, I think that there is a great opportunity in the mining sector, and when nobody else wants something, that's usually the best time to uh, to look at looking at uh, picking up value. And I think uh, Eric Coffin, Brent Cook, and John Kaiser should all help us in that regard next week. Also. I expect that Daniel McAdams will be with us again. Daniel McAdams, uh, who works for Ron Paul on his uh, excellent website, uh, Ron Paul Institute for Peace and Prosperity. Daniel actually was with the uh, the congressman uh, over the last day or two, and he's, I understand, in an aircraft flying back to Washington now. So we expect to have Daniel with us next week to talk more about uh, some of the uh, things that are going on in geopolitically right now. Um, in the world. So uh, look forward to uh, having all of you back next week to the show. I want to thank Tra- uh, Tacey Trump, my producer, Matt Widener, my engineer, for making this show logistically possible. I want to thank each of you for listening, making it the number one show on the Voice America Business Channel. Until next week, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel.